What's up, folks? This is Horophilia Jason, and welcome to my end of the year top 25 best favorite top horror films of 2020. And I want to thank right off the bat Philip Perrin for hosting this podcast. Uh, he's going to do it on the Dark Discussions Network. Uh, I'm going to, this is actually my last official podcast on the Horophilia Network. So if you're listening through Dark Discussions and you don't know who the hell I am, uh, I am the guy who used to run the Horophilia Network. When I say used to, we're finally shutting down after about 12 years of horror podcasting. Uh, I personally was a host on three different podcasts through the years. I started off with a podcast called Horophilia Podcast. Then I did move on later to a, a, a slasher review podcast called My Bloody Podcast. And then I finally ended on a new release a horror podcast called uh, Bloody Bits. And that's what I did most recently. So if you're familiar with me, that's probably where you're most likely familiar with me for. If not, and this is your first time listening to me, hope you bear with me. I know you've probably heard uh, a ton of end-of-the-year shows by now. Hopefully, I'll bring something new to the table, talk about a few films that maybe you haven't heard of. Possibly. We'll see here. Uh, one thing I'm going to be doing different on this, this is going to be, as in the words of Daisy, a one-take fucker. <laughs> My uh, old podcasts are highly edited. Uh, I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to that. I edit out all my heavy breathing, uh, my stuttering, if I fuck up reading synopsis, coughing, you name it. I, I edit the shit out, and I usually do a, a lot of producing, too, putting musical cues in, songs, and um, clips and stuff. But I'm not going to do that at all this year. I'm going to do a raw, as you will. I'm going to raw dog it. And first time I've ever done this here, I always said uh, throughout the 12 years, I'm going to eventually do a podcast where I don't, where I say fuck it, and not going to edit anything, and just go for it. And uh, due to time crunch, I need to get this out as soon as possible. So I said fuck it. This is my so-called possibly final podcast to ever record, uh, which that's probably not true. I think I'm going to keep doing these end of the year podcasts at least, and who knows, I may guest host on a po uh, podcast here and there. We'll see. Uh, but I'll talk more about that at the very end of the podcast. So first, we'll get into my thoughts on 2020 in horror. Uh, overall, I, I've been guilty of telling people this is a subpar year for horror, uh, which may be a little bit harsh. You know, it all depends on what your own personal definition of a quality year is. Uh, is it a year where if you average every horror film that's released, what it averages out to? Uh, is it a year where it has really top-heavy classics or possible classics and then a bunch of very good films um you know it, it all depends on your own personal definition of what a good quality year is uh overall now that i've finished my research finished my watching films it is a pretty good year i still say it's probably the weakest year over the past five years just because in my opinion it's not quite as top heavy you know years past does have some quote-unquote um you know classic or potential classic horror films uh that a lot of people did agree on or you know controversial ones for example i'll just give a few examples you know midsummer midsummer excuse me hereditary uh it follows get out you know there's some really high rated films over the years and this year wasn't near as much i've heard a, pun, a, a ton of these top 10 top 20 podcasts and man, people have uh, definitely different opinions this year. They're all over the place, 
which I think is pretty cool. Uh, makes for an interesting show for sure. Um, all right, so let me get a little bit further to my thoughts here. Let me see. I thought there was a lot of really good films and just a handful of great films, but no real, real potential classics in my opinion. Even my number one film of the year, uh, I don't wouldn't I admit I don't know if it's going to be a classic someday, but I think it's a really good film. Of course, it's my number one here. Uh, one thing I did different in years past, I included festival movies. So if you heard my top 10 or 20 of the past few years, there would be a few unreleased films to the masses that I would have on my list just to be different, not just say, haha, I'm better than you. I uh, got to see these away before you. Nothing like that. I just wanted to be different from the other podcasts out there. But this year is going to be different. My 2020 uh, list has no festival movies. Because I did not see any festivals. <laughs> Normally I get to see the South by Southwest in Austin. Uh, I get to attend the uh, Fantastic Fest in Austin. And usually, virtually, I do the Fantasia Festival. But last year, nope, was a no-go for those. The Fantasia still went on, but I uh, was busy during the time, so I didn't get on with that. And then the two Austin festivals were completely canceled. So I'm not going to have any films on this year's list that you can't go watch immediately through either disc or VOD. But because I used to use uh, festival movies on previous lists, there are going to be two, uh, in my opinion, big omissions that are not going to be on my list this year. Because since I did see them uh, previously, I had them on older lists, and I'll go over both those two right now. Uh, first one is Open 24 Hours. I fucking love that movie. It's an awesome slasher. It's the best, in my opinion, the best uh, modern day slasher since Girl House at least. Uh, I saw it two years ago though. When I say two years, uh, 2018 is when I saw it at a festival. So I had it on my 2018 list. Um, if it was on this year's list, I would have had it at number four. And the other big omission I'm going to have on my list is the cleansing hour. Uh, and that's because I had that on my 2019 list. Somehow I saw an early screener of it and I had no clue. I assumed it was out in 19. Uh, so I put it on my 2019 list and come to find out it wasn't even released to the masses until 2020. So I know most of the people that do have it have it as a 2020 film, but I, I don't here. But that would have made my top 25 too. I'm not sure exactly where I would have put it, probably on the lower end, but it would have made my top 25 for sure if I would have included it this year. Now to talk about some of the uh, trends I saw in 2020, uh, there were just only a handful of good zombie films. There was uh, Blood Quantum, Hash Brown, Alive, Yummy, uh, Peninsula, even though it's not even close as good as being trained up a sign, I still thought it was a decent zombie uh, film, but that was it. There wasn't any amazing zombie films, in my opinion. Uh, this was overall, besides what I already mentioned, open 24 hours and a few others I'm going to have potentially on my list. It was overall a poor year for the slashers. Um, I would say five really good ones, and two of those are going to be on my top 25 list. And a shitload of poor ones, man. There's a lot of very bad slashers this year. Now, what there was it was a fantastic year is, is, and I haven't heard anyone mention this. Maybe I'm the only one who caught a hold of it here, but I thought this was a fantastic year for uh, blacks and horror films. I personally never remember a year 
where there was either they had this many films, good films, that either had, uh, you know, black, when I say black, I don't like to use the term African-American because uh, they're not from Africans. And plus, some of these films I'm talking about are people not even from uh, America here. But anyway, this year had tons of either uh, the story was fo uh, the story was focused around black people. There was either black leads in the films or completely black cast films. Uh, I won't get too much into detail because some of these possibly may make my top 25, but I will give a few examples here. Uh, there was, of course, Tales from the Hood, uh, Part 3, which uh, is, in my opinion, a huge step up from the last entry. You have the Blumhouse film, The Black Box. Uh, you had on Hulu, Bad Hair, uh, Spell, Antebellum, uh, Kindred had a black lead. And then there's that one uh, on Netflix called uh, His House. That's uh, you know that was a British film, I believe. That was uh, a mainly black cast. You also had uh, Spiral from Netflix. All of those films, uh, you know, had black leads in it. So I was surprised at how many films this year uh, featured it. And um, all right, moving on here. Um, that's my thoughts on that. And I will, like I said, I have. Maybe some of these on my list, and I'll get into that a little bit further. Uh, There's only a handful of Hollywood, a.k.a. big-budget films that made it. You know, a lot of these were delayed to this year. Now, if some of these films were released in 2020, I think it would have been a stronger year. But, of course, the ones that were delayed offhand were Spiral, uh, The Saw Movie, Halloween, Candyman, and a bunch of other stuff here. So if those would have been out, come out in 2020, I think they would have made it a little bit stronger year. So that means 2021 is on pace, most likely, to be an amazing year. Um, all right, so to get in a little bit into my top 25 list, um, my list is uh, starts, because not only am I going to rank the films 25 to 1, I mean, uh, yeah, rank them 25 to 1. I'm also going to rate the films at the very end. And just to give a brief rundown of my rating system, um, if it's a below a 5, it's a shitty film. If it is a 5, it's a film that I didn't like, didn't hate. It's just a film that's kind of there. Uh, I would say 5 to 5.75 are films I really can't recommend. Now, once you get to the 6 range... Any film that's 6 out of 10, I would slight recommendation if you like that type of film. And then once you get to 7 and above, that's when it really escalates in my rating system here. So anything between uh, like a 7 um, and a 7.5 are really good. 7.5 actually, I mean 7.75 I should say, is the barrier of where it's almost a great film. Not quite a great film, missing maybe one or two elements to make it great but still a really damn good film. Uh, anything that's uh, 8 to 8.75 is a great film. I mean, that's the top of the year. Uh, definitely recommend it. And anything that's 9 and above is a classic. 9 is my classic. 9.5 and, and 10 are so rare. You're talking like anything 9.5 or 10 are probably top 100 films of all time, horror films. <laughs> Uh, so that's a get an idea of my rating system. So even though I think this is kind of a subpar year, this is the first year where my number 25 
actually starts at a 7.75. So that's where my list starts at is 7.75 and up. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. And I'm not going to give any major spoilers. I will discuss some films more than others, but I promise not to give any major spoilers. Nothing that should ruin your enjoyment of the film. But if it is a film that's, you know, not as popular as I think it should be, I may talk about it a little bit more and, you know, hopefully give you some incentive to watch it here. So if you got a pen and pad or notepad, I guess, on your phones, people do nowadays, get ready, hopefully, to write some stuff and maybe I'll have some uh, cool shit to recommend. And once I'm done with the top 25, I'm also going to have a few honorable mentions, not very many, but there's a few um, that I'm going to mention here. And then uh, at the very end, I'll have a few hidden gems, ones that weren't quite good enough to make my top 25 or top 30, but they are films I think you definitely should see. So in comparison to, uh, you know, previous years, I'm not going in as I'm death. Used to, I have like top slashes of the year, top zombies of the year, top actors of the year, best kills of the year, you know, best uh, favorite hotties of the year. I had used to have tons of different categories. I'm not going to do that in death of this year, uh, but hopefully there's enough material to keep this uh, entertaining. All right, so here we go. It's going to be my top 25. So number 25 is a film called hosts this is uh, two directors here adam leader richard oaks um this is their first feature film together and it looks like they have a second film on the way and here's a synopsis here a family falls victim to a series of violent murders when they invite their neighbors over for christmas dinner and i'm not going to get in spoilers on this one here but it is kind of like a alien invasion possession type of film without spoiling too much uh it does have actually my kill of the year well technically it doesn't I, I, my my actual kill of the year it was in that russell crowe movie unhinged and there's a cop that gets out of his car and then all of a sudden that fucker gets gets mowed down man and just instantly killed it's not a gory death but it's pretty damn shocking and it, it's a fist pumping moment for sure so technically unhinged had my kill of the year but if you're talking about in a horror film with gore, then this one is, uh, I'll just say it's the dinner scene. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a dinner scene and there's a fantastic kill at the dinner scene. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so yeah, it's a, uh, really good acting. I like the dialogue, uh, some fantastic gore effects. Um, yeah, I don't know if the ending is quite as good as I really wanted it to be, but it was still satisfactory. So this gets a 7.75 out of 10. And once again, this film is called Hosts. And this host with the S on the end, I know there was that Zoom call, British one. It's H-O-S-T. I'm not talking about that one. Uh, this is a different film. All right, now moving on to my number 24 of the year. And this is one of the latest additions that I added on at the last moment here. But it is The Day of the Lord. is directed by Santiago Alvarado. And it came out at the end of the year on Netflix. Uh, and here's a synopsis for this one. A retired priest, haunted by his sins, is pulled back into the darkness when a friend begs him to help his possessed daughter. Uh, so the film's basically about this uh, teen girl. She moves into this priest's house. Her dad thinks, um, I get, what, did I say it was Argentina? Yeah, it's from Argentina. Uh, so her dad thinks she's possessed by a demon because of all this uh, rebellion she has or whatever. Um, so, you know, at first I was like, is it going to be one of those films? Is she really possessed or is it 
uh, one of these just appearance are crazy. They think their bad daughter is uh, being possessed. But no, I mean, you find out fairly early she is definitely possessed here. But what makes this film unique is the priest. He definitely has an unorthodox method uh, of exorcism, including extreme physical violence. Um, so let's just put it that way. He had an, uh, a new way of exorcism I've never seen uh, applied in a movie before. And there is a kind of cool moments where the father of the girl, he has to end up helping the priest. Um, there's some very odd comedic scenes toward the end, which I know they're supposed to make you uncomfortable. Um, I'm not sure if they fully worked all the way. If I had any negative, as some of those comedic moments at the very end kind of took me out of the film a little bit. Uh, I, I understand what they were going for um, because of the subject material that they were tackling at the time of this happening. There's some pretty kind of shocking stuff here. So I know they maybe did this to make it a little bit more lighthearted or maybe they did it to make it even more shocking. I don't know, but I don't think all the comedy worked towards the very end of the film. Uh, but yeah, overall, this is a damn good possession film. Uh, wasn't as good as the cleansing hour. Once again, that was the best possession film a pure possession film, I should say, uh, of this year, but this is the second best. And that is on Netflix here, The Day of the Lord. All right, now moving on to my number 23 of the film, uh, 23 movie of the year, The Rental. And this is directed by Dave Franco. Uh, and yeah, if that name uh, sounds familiar here, that's, uh, oh man, what's that Franco dude's name? I already forgot that fucker's name. The other Franco, the uh, Green Goblin guy. This is his little brother. And, uh, man, damn, he did a fucking awesome job directing this film. It stars Dave Franco's wife, Allison Brie, Dan Stevens, which uh, most horror, film, uh, horror fans probably know Dan Stevens from either The Guest or he was in that film, uh, Apostle, on Netflix. He also stars Sheila Vand, which I'd never seen her before. She's pretty damn good. And then uh, Jeremy Allen White. Which, I didn't know who the kid was, man, but I finally remembered here. It's that fucker from Shameless, the guy named Lip. Uh, I watched Shameless for one season, and that was all I could take, man. I don't see why people praise that film, praise that TV series, man. It just was too white trash for me. About halfway through the second season, I bowed out. I was like, no, that's it for me. I don't I don't need to see this white trash family. It doesn't, it's not entertaining to me, so I bowed out halfway. Anyway, it's the guy Lip, though. He does a damn good job in this film. All of the actors in this are perfect. Um, that's what makes this movie above average. The, the story itself is not amazing. It's kind of familiar. Uh, here's a synopsis here. Two couples on an Oceanside getaway grow suspicious that their host of the seemingly perfect rental house may be spying on them. Before long, what should have been a celebratory weekend trip turns into something far more sinister. Yeah, so these two couples are, uh, you know, as a red out on vacation, they rent this house, and the uh, guy who rented it to him, he's kind of weird, kind of creepy, and uh, they think he's spying on them, and uh, they just say shit goes sideways. Uh, there's some twists that work, uh, and at the last, uh, I would say two-thirds of the film, it plays like a normal thriller-type film, and then the last third turns into a slasher. And that's uh, where it steps up, and I really enjoyed the hell of it. So if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. The Rental. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention The Day of the Lord and The Rental, both 7.75 out of 10 ratings. And actually, <laughs> a lot of these are going to be 7.75s. So I'll tell you when I get to the 8s here. 
when that comes. Um, and oh yeah, here's some notes. I'm reading my notes here on the rental. This film is partly written by Joe Swan, uh, Swanberg. So that's why the story kind of feels familiar in a way, because it definitely feels like something Joe Swanberg would do. Um, but yeah, great cinematography and a great acting, man. I, I'd recommend it. All right, moving on to number 22. And this is one I wasn't sure if I was going to like, but obviously I did. It is Freaky. And this is directed by Christopher Landon, who also did Happy Death Day series, Scout's Guide uh, to the Apocalypse. He also did uh, Paranormal Activity, the Mark one. So he has a, pr a pretty decent resume. I'm not a huge fan of Happy Death Day 2, but I thought one is pretty good. And I absolutely love Scout's Guide to the uh, Apocalypse. So that's, to me, his best film overall. Uh, but anyway, Freaky is damn close here. Uh, it is a mystical ancient dagger causes a notorious serial killer to magically switch bodies with a 17-year-old girl. A mystical... Wait a minute, I wrote the fucking synopsis twice. Okay, that's what it's about. Basically, Vince Vaughn is a serial killer. He goes to kill a girl and his body, his soul ends up switching to a 17-year-old girl's body. And so, <laughs> so Vince Vaughn has to play a 17-year-old girl, basically, that's trying to get her her body back and i thought uh man he made the film i thought he was fucking awesome vince vaughn was uh, terrific um catherine newton who switched bodies with him she became the killer uh she was also really good here so but 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 yeah this film lives and dies on vince vaughn playing the 17 year old girl and he did it br uh, brilliantly man it could have been cringeworthy or over the top but i thought he had the right mixture of comedy and subtlety to pull it off and the girl, if she uh, looks familiar to you, she is one of the horny teens in the movie called Blockers. And she also played Alex in Paranormal Activity 4. Uh, but she was really good, too. But, yeah, the film had a lot of funny moments. Great gore. You know, nothing too original. Of course, this story kind of sounds like a mixture of Child's Play, Face Off, a <laughs> bunch of other films here. Uh, and and what really reminded me of the tone of the film and the look lighting and everything it reminded me a little bit of tragedy girls even though i think tragedy girls overall is a stronger film this film definitely had a uh, reminded me of it for sure uh, so if you're a vince von hater and just don't like uh comedy horror i still say give it a chance man i think it's a, a pretty good watch and it's definitely hell of a lot better than what i was expecting here and once again, that's a 7.75 out of 10. All right, now moving on to my number 21. It is a film. I haven't seen this on anyone else's list. I know a couple people out there that I know have seen the film, but I personally haven't seen anyone else's list, and it's called Captured. And it is directed by a guy named Joe Arias. It's his uh, first time he directed full-length. He did some shorts, but this is his first full-length film. And here's a synopsis. A weekend getaway to shoot a music video turns into a nightmare for a rock and roll band when they become the crazed obsession of an escaped convict that is purposely targeting the female lead of the band. All right, this is a found footage film. It's about this band. They're going to make uh, this video at an old house uh, that the singer, that the lead singer, used to live at. Uh, the only one that lives there now is like a groundskeeper that that. Uh, groundskeep <laughs> uh you find uh, throughout the film you find info about the lead girl's past 
the killer stalker guy shows up. There's a big twist reveal. I absolutely love this film, but here's a big caveat here. I seem to be in the minority here. Uh, everything I read, uh, complaints online that the acting was bad. It took way too long to get to the kills. Uh, the twist was easy to figure out, which I call bullshit on that. Uh, but man, this film is universally trash. So if there is one film on my top 25 that you probably don't need to listen to me, it would be this one. <laughs> Unless you are a huge found footage uh, film lover. If you are, then definitely give it a watch. But if you're not a found footage person, then this is definitely a skip because I am highly in the minority uh, from what it seems like. But once again, I'm going to give this film a 7.75 out of 10. All right, now the next film, my number 20, is thanks to Mark Nato for introducing me to this film. I had no plans on watching it uh, because of the name, the artwork. Um, yeah, it just didn't look interesting to me at all. And I assumed it was going to be such a shitty film. But thank God I did uh, end up giving it a chance thank to, thanks to Mark Nato's uh, positive review of it. And it is a film called The Empty Man. And this film is directed by a guy named David Pryor. Uh, he also is a first-time full-length director here. Uh, he used to, what he used to direct is behind-the-scenes specials on DVDs and Blu-rays. <laughs> That's where he's known from. He did a bunch of big-name big movies here. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Benjamin Button. Social Network, Bad Boys 2. So the dude has some talent, but you know, that's all he did previously is behind the scenes stuff. And this is his first full length film. And here's a synopsis on this one. The first night you hear him, the second night you see him, the third night he finds you. After a group of teens from a small Midwestern town begin to mysteriously disappear, the locals believe it is the work of an urban legend known as the Empty Man. As a retired cop investigates and struggles to make sense of the stories, he discovers a horrific secret that puts his life and the lives of those close to him in grave danger. Alright, now this film, it is nothing like what I was expecting. Uh, with the name The Empty Man, I was expecting shit like The Bye Bye Man, The Slender Man, or any kind of generic man movies that come out over the past few years. Um... Now, there is about a 15-minute sequence with a bunch of teenagers summoning the empty man on this creepy bridge. But other than that, one segment of the movie, it is basically a police, uh, it's like a police procedural investigation drama. Uh, and they, even towards the end, it kind of turns into like a cosmic horror. <laughs> kind of highbrow horror, put it that way. It ends up being, one. it starts off one way and then you end up uh, getting kind of highbrow. Uh, now what I say, what I say to everyone here, if you like the first 10 minutes of the film, I say, start the film. If you love the first 10 minutes, which I think most people will then stick with it, give it a chance because the film comes, it rolls back around there. It starts off strong. It goes into the teen thing for just a slight little while. And then it goes away from the teen thing and, and, uh, focuses on this cop, uh, till the end of the movie here. Um, and the guy's a name, uh, the cop who plays this, he was fantastic, man. He carried the film. It's him uh, being by himself in a lot of the scenes of the movie. And his, the actor's name is James Badgedale. Um, and he's basically trying to help a friend find her missing daughter that supposedly went missing because of the empty man. 
Now, if there is a big flaw in the film, it is the length of the film. It is over two hours. Uh, I think they could have probably cut 15 to 20 minutes of it. And I probably would have even bumped this film even higher. So that's my only big negative with it is it's a little bit too long. And plus, they need to fucking rename this film. The Empty Man. They, they could have come up with so many other names because that's not like a huge part of the film. Um, the Empty Man part. So they could have easily renamed it something else to make it better and better artwork. Uh, but overall, the film has some definitely creepy sequences, awesome cinematography. It's, it is a slow burn film, but I think it pays off in the end here. So that is my number 20 film of the year, The Empty Man at a 7.75 out of 10. All right, now the next film, number 19. What's weird about this one is this film is made well enough that it made my no number 19 film of the year. But it is a film that I don't, I don't want to say this wrong. It's not that I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed it and recognized for what it was. But it's one of these films that it's a one and done. I don't think I could ever find myself watching this again. There's no like big twist or anything that keeps you coming back to see what the hell that you missed. <laughs> I know I'm trashing it now, but uh, it is a really well made film. It's just something that to me has zero rewatchability for it. But I'm rating it so high because it's so well made and so creepy. And that film is The Dark and the Wicked, directed by Brian Bertino. And here's a synopsis. On a secluded farm in a nondescript rural town, a man is slowly dying. His family gathers to mourn, and soon a darkness grows, marked by waking nightmares and a growing sense that something evil has taken over the family. So this is a film where it's one of the cases where atmosphere wins out in the end. Because um, I personally don't know why I liked it as much as I did because besides atmosphere. Because as far as the story is concerned, not really much happens overall. The film starts off with this uh, older lady, this mother of these two adults. She ends up killing herself. The two adult siblings go to take care of their dying father. And while they're at the house, evil shit starts to happen. Uh, you know, it does have a great sense of dread, great cinematography. Uh, I even liked the two lead actors. I thought they were great. And even has an okay ending here. Uh, and I kind of have a... Man, Brian Bertino, he is one of these directors I think is so close to making a masterpiece. He's not quite there, but he's so close. I know people love Strangers and think that's a masterpiece. I think Strangers 1, I love Strangers 2 actually, but I think Strangers 1 is a little bit over on the overrated side. It does have creepy moments just like this film does. Just like Monster, which I think Monster overall is my favorite film of his. Um, and then he has that Mockingbird Lane one, which is, nah, I, don't, I don't really dig that one here. But he's so close to making a true classic here. So I'm going to keep watching the shit he does. I think that, you know, someday he's got a classic horror film in him as long as he stays in the horror genre. Um, but <laughs> that's the, the dark and the wicked 7.75 out of 10. Um, I know Mark Nato loves it. If you hadn't heard his podcast, you need to hear him rave about it and tons of other people love it too. So it's not just him and it's a well-made film, just uh zero rewatchability for myself. All right. Now moving on to number 18. And I think this was the only one that I actually saw in the theater. I think I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. And it is The Invisible Man. 
and it is directed by Lee Winnell. Uh, I'm not going to get into synopsis. You should know what the Invisible Man is. But it's an extremely well-made movie with great performances. Uh, the dinner scene in the film was uh, quite shocking. Um, for me, there was a fairly obvious twist that was foreshadowed. But it still ended pretty damn strong with a strong finale. Uh, oh man, this is one of these cases where I can't blame the film. I'm not going to take off for this. But this is one of the cases where the trailer spoils every fucking thing of the movie. Every major scene was in a trailer. Uh, so I wish I wouldn't have seen that ahead of time. So, <laughs> But I can't blame the movie. I'm not going to take points off for that. That's just marketing's uh, sake here. Uh, so yeah, Invisible Man's a damn good film. Great performances. Uh, some really cool uh, sequences in the film too. Lee Winnell definitely knows his way around a camera. Alright, so that was Invisible Man. Also, 7.75 out of 10. Surprise, surprise. Alright, now moving on to my number 17 of the year. And this was The Call. And it is directed by Lee Chung Young. And here's the synopsis. Connected by phone in the same home but 20 years apart, a serial killer puts another woman's past and life on the line to change her own fate. Uh, so basically, you have a girl in present time. She receives a call from a girl from 20 years in the past that needs help, asking her to help her out. Um, so basically, as you can guess, you know, uh, there's a big twist uh, in the film. Uh, it should, if it had been straight on, that would have been a fucking interesting concept just alone here. Now, one major potential major flaw for some people, maybe they don't explain the logic behind the film of how this is happening. Um, you know, I guess it's kind of, you can put it in the butterfly effect camp. It really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. Uh, I mean, there is really zero explanation of why this is happening, but it doesn't really matter here. Yeah, but yeah anyway, you have these two girls going back and forth on the phone between present time and past time. Um, now, there is a major twist that comes in, and there is a fucking intense finale, final act of the film. Um, now, I could have done without the last 30 seconds of the film. Yeah, there's kind of a wink, nod type goofy thing they kind of do. Uh, I don't know, man. It, it, it That didn't bring it down at all. It's kind of one of those unnecessary things. Kind of like in Carrie, whenever uh, Carrie's hand pops out at the end. Totally unnecessary, but they, they threw it in, and they, they kind of do similar-ish type of, type of thing with this film, do something unnecessary, uh, unless they think this is going to do good enough to make a sequel, maybe, I have no idea, uh, but anyway, besides the, la the very last few seconds of the film, I thought it was a fantastic film, man, South Koreans, once again, we're on it this year, even films that didn't make my top 25, um, like The Closet, for example, was awesome, Monstrum was awesome, so South Koreans, man, they're on the ball still, they know what the hell they're doing. All right, so moving on from one Asian film to another Asian film, and it is Empedagore. And this is directed by, how you say, Joki Anwar. He is the guy who directed uh, recently Satan's Slaves, which I ended up really high on my end-of-the-year list a few years back. And he did another film, which I didn't like quite as much, called Ritual, but it's still a good film. And here's the synopsis on this one. Uh, Maya, with her best friend Dini, try to survive in a city without a family. She realizes that she might inherit a property from her rich family. Maya returns to the village with Dini and unaware of the danger that's expecting them. 
so that's basically the synopsis here. You have these two city girls that are friends. They arrive at this uh, local village, kind of a backwoods type of village here. Uh, and the locals there aren't exactly welcoming welcoming them. <laughs> uh, you know, something mysterious is going on. There is, uh, it's about a, basically about a family curse that's centered around the character of Maya. Um, there's some fantastic gore moments in the film, some crazy visuals. This one has a lot of atmosphere. The cinematography is fantastic here and a solid ending here. So this is definitely, um, an underrated film. I heard, I've heard a few people, uh, you know, rave about it here, but I think it definitely should be getting more attention. It didn't get quite as much attention as I thought it would get. And it is, I believe I saw this one on Shudder. Not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure I think, think that's where I saw it was in Shudder here. So if you got Shudder and you hadn't checked it out yet, uh, I recommend. And once again, that's a 7.75 out of 10. All right, now moving on to my number 15 of the year, which may be surprising to some people that I don't have it higher, uh, including maybe Mr. Uh, Philip Perrin here. And it is The Lodge. And this is directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala, which those are the people who also directed Goodnight Mommy and The Field Guide to Evil, which I like to actually like both those films quite a bit here. And here's a brief synopsis here. A soon-to-be stepmom is snowed in with her fiancé's two children at a remote holiday village. Just as relations begin to thaw between the trio, some strange and frightening events take place. Uh, now this is a film that I had in my top 10 for a long time. Uh, I did have issues with the finale upon first watch, but it wasn't enough to knock it out of the top 10, but I tried to rewatch all of my top 10 films this year. And this had the second biggest drop upon rewatch. Um, I love the, I absolutely love the concept of the film. Great atmosphere, solid acting. Uh, I even like the concept of the twist of the film. I'm just not a big fan of how it was actually revealed. And I do have some problems with the final act of the film. If you want to get specific with me, you know, message me on Facebook or send me an email or something here. Uh, I just didn't think the ending played out realistically. I'm trying not to spoil it here, but I just don't think it kind of played out realistically for me at like a physical point. Um... One moment in particular that happened in the film, I was like, come on, that wouldn't happen in real life. Um, but apparently I'm one of the few people that have a problem with the last act because I haven't really heard anyone complain about it, unless they just don't want to spoil it. I have no idea here. Uh, but if it didn't have the issues with the third act of the film, the very finale, then I would have rated this even higher. And I can see how some people, if you don't have a problems with some of the things I did, how you would have it extremely high. Because it is an extremely well-made film. You know, there are moments that do remind me of Hereditary, like the, uh, what do you call it, the dollhouse and stuff. And just the pacing and stuff kind of remind me of that. So, it's definitely good shit. Uh, it's still my 15th favorite film of the, uh, the year, so that should tell you something here. <laughs> uh, but it is uh, also 7.75 out of 10. Alright, now moving on to my number 14 of the year. And I'm not sure why I don't have this ranked higher, because... This is a film I've seen three times, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, and I enjoy the hell out of it. It definitely has rewatch value, obviously. Um, I don't know, but it is, number 14 is The Wretched, and it is directed by, I'm assuming, Brothers. 
They could be cousins, but or father and son, who knows? But they're directed by Drew Pierce and Brett Pierce. And that duo also directed a film called Deadheads. I never saw it, but it, it looked damn interesting to me. So here's a brief synopsis of The Wretched. A rebellious teenage boy struggling with his parents' imminent divorce encounters a terrifying evil after his next-door neighbor becomes possessed by an ancient witch that feasts on children. Now, this film may have my favorite artwork of the year. It is fucking badass. The main poster of it, it's this woman. She's kind of like in a fetal position, naked, holding up a deer skull. I absolutely love the artwork of the film. And this is one of the films I played at drive-ins, I believe, over the summer. So it ended up making a shitload of money <laughs> in comparison to most indie films. Uh, uh, now, what I liked about the film, it had a really cool story. It had a mixture of, like, Forget Me Not, uh, which is an underrated film. The Hole and other films that are pretty similar here. Uh, and I really, really liked the main cast of the film. I thought the next door woman who kind of first becomes possessed, I thought she was uh, terrifically evil. You have the main kid. I thought he was great. His dad and then his, kind of the love interest, his co-worker. I enjoyed all of the acting in the film. I thought that was pretty damn good. Uh, the film has some really solid pacing. Uh, there's some good scare moments and visuals. Uh, now, I wasn't quite the biggest uh, fan of the, uh, the final confrontation, the finale. It was adequate, but I thought they could have probably done something maybe a little bit bigger, maybe. Um, but, and then there also, and when, now I had problems with the calls, little bitty final twist they threw in, but I had no problems with this one. They do another little twist right before the credits roll, and I think it really worked in this film, in The Wretched here. So, yeah, man, if you haven't seen The Wretched, it is a recommend, obviously. And it is my number 14 film of the year. And let's see if you can guess here what I'm rating it. Yep, I'm rating it a 7.75 out of 10. <laughs> All right, moving on to my number 13 film of the year. And it is, uh, I didn't get to see this in theater. This is one of the films that probably would have uh, enjoyed it even more in theater, believe it or not. Uh, I know people say I'm a big proponent of home video, which I am. I'm not the hugest fan. Of the theater, I think you can have almost a theatrical experience at home if you have a big-ass 4K TV and you have a good surround sound system. Um, but this potentially would have been one of the films that I would have maybe wanted to see on the big screen. And it is Underwater. It's directed by William Eubank. And after an earthquake, after an earthquake destroys their underwater station, six researchers must navigate two miles along the dangerous unknown depths of the ocean uh, floor to make it to safety in a race against time. Now, I love me some underwater horror films such as Leviathan, Deep Star 6. Uh, it's, it's a mixture of like a creature feature mixed with disaster film, and I think it handles both of those uh, genres very well. Uh, fantastic CGI creatures. I think the film is tightly edited. Um, I know I've seen some complaints about the acting. I thought Kristen Stewart was decent enough. The other co-actors I thought were, were decent. <laughs> I didn't have any problem with the acting, put it that way. Uh, and I really enjoyed the last few moments of the film here. It's nothing amazing. I mean, it's nothing that you haven't seen in other action movies, uh, creature feature movies. I just think combination of everything, the um, the budget. I mean, it looks like it had a, few, a fucking huge budget because the CGI is on point, man fantastic cgi or even creature effects if they're practical but anyway it, it looks big budget so it's a fun film number 13 
underwater. And 7.75 out of 10. <laughs> All right, so that was actually my last 7.75 out of 10. Everything from here on out is going to bump up a score here. So my first 8 out of 10 is my number 12 film. And this film, I was never going to give the time of day. I thought the title was stupid. I thought the artwork was horrendous. Um, I was never, ever going to even try to watch it. I didn't even want to look at the synopsis because I was so turned off by the name and artwork. But luckily, I heard the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror end of the year podcast, and they turned me on to this film, and it is fantastic. It's called The Golden Glove. And this is directed by Fatih Akin. Akin, maybe? I don't know. A serial killer strikes fear in the hearts of residents of Hamburg during the early 1970s. <laughs> it's a basic plot here. It's based on a true story. And basically it's about uh, a killing spree of this German serial killer named Fritz Honka in, in the early 70s in Hamburg, Germany. No big twist to the story. Nothing. It's just like uh, you're spending few months with this character as he goes along with his life and ends up killing women um yeah so so basically it's very low on plot it's a loser guy he frequents a bar he picks up skanks kills him stuffs him in his cupboards that's basically it <laughs> but what makes this an awesome film fantastic acting uh, the film is a 70s period film. It looks fucking gritty. It's an awesome period piece. It reminded me of the grit and grime that you would see in a film like Maniac. Fantastic setting. Um, obviously, the film is based on a true story. So you have a pretty idea uh, how the film is going to end. But I still think it was a fulfilling journey to get to the end of the film. Uh, and what I also highly enjoyed is when the credits rolled of the film. It showed crime scene footage. And you get to see how accurate the set designers were to the real thing. I was surprised and shocked how how uh, how I uh, how alike it was to the real actual crime scene photos here. Uh, so, but despite this simple and repetitive nature of the film, I was highly engaged the whole time. I never looked at the time. Uh, this would be a film that I th normally, normal circumstances, they would make it way too long. Um, too much unnecessary dialogue or some scenes that were just thrown in there and i didn't have any problems of any of that i thought the film uh, the film was edited uh perfectly and yeah man it was a fantastic performance and a really good film man my number 12 of the year and that is the golden glove eight out of ten and i think that is still on shutter i believe that's uh, that's where i saw it so skip the artwork and uh, just hit play don't even look at it <laughs> Alright, now moving on to my number 11 film of the year, and I'm pretty sure I am the only person that I at least have heard of. Maybe, uh, you know, there is one or two top 10 podcasts I didn't get to hear quite yet. Now that I'm thinking about it, one of those podcasters may have this film on their list. But anyway, it's a film I highly enjoyed. It's a horror comedy, and it is Ghost Killers versus Bloody Mary. And this is directed by a guy named Fabricio Bittar. Um, it's a Brazilian film here, and here's a synopsis. A group of three YouTubers who call themselves experts in supernatural beings decide to win public recognition once and for all. For this, they plot a plan to capture a being known to all. It is the spirit of a light-haired woman who died in an unknown way and haunts the bathrooms of schools across the country. 
the blonde in the bathroom. Alright, now, what is surprising is it didn't get more praise is because on my letter, if you have letterbox, you can uh, have friends on your letterbox and you can kind of see what they rate the film. And all of my letterbox friends either rated this a four or a four and a half out of five stars. So I was I was kind of shocked that it didn't appear on more people's end of the year list. Uh, but for myself, I had a fun, gory blast with the film. Uh, as I read, it's basically a bunch of fake ghost hunters. Um, you know, they set up fake ghost hunting to get hits on YouTube. And they're actually hired by the school to de debunk a ghost haunting. Because the kids there claim that it's haunted by this blonde woman. And uh, so anyway, they're going to go there and pretend like they catch her. And the way the uh, school can have good publicity or whatever. But once they get to the school, there really is a killer ghost there. <laughs> and these Ghostbusters, as you will, have to fight against the ghost. Extremely gory. Uh, the, some over-the-top slapstick stuff. Some of it works, I admit. Some of it doesn't work. Um, so, you know, if you're not into that type of comedy, you may not like it. But it did have, you know, some Evil Dead 2-ish type uh, moments to it. Some really good comedy. Uh, you know, some work, some things don't. But great practical gore. It's really fast-paced. Just a fun film. This is one of these party films, man. You can just throw on, sit back, drink your brew, or whatever you're into. And that is my number 11 film of the year. And that is at 8 out of 10, Ghost Killers vs. Bloody Mary. And I saw this on DVD. Uh, I got a screener to review. I, I'm assuming it's on VOD, but I'm not sure here. But I, I'm, I'm sure it probably is. All right, so that ends my number 11 film of the year. Okay, now we're getting to the nitty-gritty, the top 10. The 10 best films, in my opinion, of the year. And my number 10 is Anything for Jackson. And this is directed by a guy named Justin Dyke. Or Dick? I'm not sure. <laughs> Either way, it's kind of funny. All right, classic films such as Christmas Wedding. And this guy, I'm reading my notes all fucked up here. This guy has directed such classic films such as The Christmas Wedding Planner, Christmas Catch, A Very Country Christmas, A Puppy for Christmas, and a dozen more Christmas Hallmark uh, type romance films. <laughs> so I was, man, it's super surprising this dude uh, directed this film. I guess this dude wanted to get out of the uh, Christmas spirit and get the darkness out of him, out of his system uh, with directing this film, and boy, did he succeed here. All right, so here is the brief synopsis here. A bereaved Satanist couple kidnap a pregnant woman so they can use an ancient spell book to put their dead grandson's spirit into her un unborn child but they end up summoning more than they bargained for. <laughs> uh, so this is, as you will, a dark comedy of sorts. It's uh, this elderly couple. who want to bring back their dead three-year-old grandson back to life. Uh, they end up buying this Necronomicon type of book with spells uh, to invite the spirit of the grandson into this pregnant woman they kidnapped. Uh, but they accidentally end up opening this portal for other ghosts and spirits to come into the earth to possess people. Um, and, um, besides, you know, besides the exorcism type thing, uh, at the end of the film, you have, uh, these encounters with the other quote unquote ghosts that are in limbo. They end up, uh, coming into the real world. So that's what you're dealing with in the film is these characters and the pregnant woman, they're, um, 
coming upon these freaky ghosts with the highlight ghost being this little kid uh, wearing a sheet going trick-or-treat starts off as like maybe like a little three or four year old kid and then all of a sudden it grows larger and larger and fucking huge that was, that was, to me that was the best scene of the film you'll notice what i'm talking about when it happens here um what i really liked about the film is it portrays people not knowing exactly what the hell they're doing uh you know they have this necronomicon type book but they're winging it uh the best they can they're not they're not professional criminals they're not professional saintness um, so, you know, they're trying to deal with what they're trying to do their best to bring their grandson back, but they're also having to deal with the cops who are right on, hot on their trail. And this all leads to this big clusterfuck showdown that I absolutely loved. Um, great character actors, the, the, the two leads, the husband and wife, the, the grandparents, they were fantastic. Uh, the side characters were awesome. And this is a film that even got better upon rewatch. I didn't have it quite as high upon first watch. And then uh, once I kind of knew what to expect and the tone they were going for, because, I mean, it's a serious film overall, but there are some comedic moments, especially one of the characters that shows up kind of towards the end. Um, but, uh, but yeah, upon rewatch, I picked up on some things I didn't pick up before, and I love this film here. It's an 8 out of 10. Anything for Jackson. Oh, and my son's name is Jackson here, so... I got a, like, a little in-joke here. Whenever he asks me to do something, I tell him, anything for Jackson. And he doesn't he doesn't get the hell I'm talking about. But uh, I guess you don't care about that. But anyway, moving on to my number nine film of the year. And this was actually the only film that I really, really wanted to rewatch. But I didn't have time here. So this, I have a feeling that this potentially could go even higher upon rewatch. And my number nine film of the year is Possessor. And this is directed by Brandon Cronenberg. And as you can tell, he's a chip off the old body whore block. Uh, his debut film, Antiviral, was fucking brilliant. Um, I don't think Possessor is quite as good. I know some people like it more, but I think uh, Antiviral is really, really awesome. This one is not quite as good, but it is a fantastic follow-up. So after his first two films... I already, I, in my opinion, at, at this point of his dad's career, I think he has a stronger two debut films than his dad did. Of course, he has a hell of a long ways to catch up to his dad. He's got to make a lot more classic films to catch up to his dad's status, but he's off to a fantastic start for sure. All right, here's the synopsis on this. No body is safe. Tassa Voss, an elite corporate assassin, uses brain implant technology to take control of other people's bodies to terminate high-profile targets. As she sinks deeper into her latest assignment, Voss becomes trapped inside of a mind that threatens to obliterate her. Uh, I'm not going to get much into the story at all. It's kind of one of these mindfuck-type films. Fantastic sci-fi horror concept, great visuals, uh, music, practical gore. Uh, yeah, man, it has it all. And I think it has a pretty uh, solid editing, too. I think any viral... Uh, if I had any issues with any of our, I think it was a tad too long, but I thought Possess a Possessor was uh, edited very well here. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to rewatch it sometime soon, but it is fantastic. It's an 8 out of 10 for myself. All right, now moving on to my number 8 film of the year. And this is one, if you would have told me about this and read the synopsis and showed me the artwork, I would have said no fucking way I would have it this high. But it's a film that won me over. And it is called Spontaneous. And it is directed by Brian Duffield. And here's a synopsis. 
an explosive love story. When students in their high school begin ex inexplicably exploding, literally, seniors Mara and Dylan struggle to survive in a world where each moment may be their last. <laughs> and this is uh, by a first-time director. Um, this film just shouldn't have worked, but somehow it did. It's essentially a love story involving these two students that their classmates are exploding out of thin air. They'll be sitting in a classroom and all of a sudden someone explode. They'll start running. They'll explode. Just doing different shit. They'll explode. So that eventually the classmates have to get quarantined uh, in the government or trying to find out uh, why it's happening and how to stop it. But essentially what it is, it's basically a love story between these two students and them dealing with uh, being a teenager and growing up with uh, what the fuck is going around them. Uh, there are some definitely touching moments. And in my opinion, a fantastic, unexpected finale. I thought it was going to go a totally different direction than what it went, but I was extremely happy it went the way it did. Uh, this film's not for everyone if you're not into like romance type films. Um, yeah, man, I wouldn't. If you're a hardcore horror fan and romance films are the furthest thing that you like, then yeah, I wouldn't even give it a chance here. But if you uh, are like me and like them both, uh, yeah, it's definitely worth watching for sure here. So that is another 8 out of 10 for myself. Spontaneous. Now, moving on to number 7. And this one is my most rewatch of the year. I've seen it, I think, four times now. I've watched it with different people. Uh, this has a lot of rewatchability, in my opinion. And it is The Hunt. And it is directed by Craig Zobel. Twelve strangers wake up in a clearing. They don't know where they are or how they got there. In the shadow of a dark internet conspiracy theory, ruthless elitists gather at a remote location to hunt humans for sport, but their master plan is about to be derailed when one of the hunted turns the tables on her pursuers. Uh, <laughs> it was a really fun action horror film. I would say it's in the vein of something like Mayhem, Ready or Not, uh, really big production values, a big cast, uh, some really fun performances. Uh, I thought the the final girl, um, a new actress to me, uh, I thought she was fantastic. And, of course, I don't want to spoil it, but the head boss, as you will, um, she was fantastic, too. There's a killer finale. Uh, what I like about the film is it makes fun of, you know, the political left and the right equally. Um, I don't think it picks on one more than the other. It makes them both look fucking ridiculous. Um and what I absolutely love is at the beginning of the film, I love how it killed off all the characters that you think are going to be the main people. I mean, nope, yeah, they introduce you to someone, dead. Introduce someone else, dead. <laughs> so you're like, who the hell is going to be the main person of this film? Um, so I absolutely love that. That's a little bit of a spoiler, but I'm sure most of you have seen this by now, hopefully. Um, my only complaint in the film is there is a slight lull towards the middle when they get to the whole train train thing, you'll know what I'm talking about, but they have to board this train with some other people. Kind of in that brain, it, it drags a little bit, just a slight lull though. Other than that, it's, you know, it's fast paced, edited and really fun film. Uh, so big thumbs up for that. And that's an eight out of 10 for me, the hunt. All right. Now, number six, this is a film that I didn't have quite as high, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it, and I was like, wow, this doesn't really have many flaws. I have no idea why not more people are talking about this film or liking it. 
uh, and that is Spell, and it is directed by Mark Tonderay, who directed the fantastic film House on Dead End Street. That's that's sarcasm there, but anyway, <laughs> it's a big step up. Put it this way, from that movie. Uh, here's the synopsis. Here, evil tells have their roots. A father survives a plane crash in a rural Appalachia, but becomes suspicious of the elderly couple who take him in to nurse him back to health with ancient remedies. While uh, while the film, okay, that so that's the synopsis here. And uh, now I'm getting back to my notes here. While Antebellum uh, was the quote-unquote black film of the year they got more of the buzz i thought this was the strongest black centric film of the year i absolutely love the setup um of the whole plane crash this rich guy you know uh, crashing his plane this uh old couple end up taking him in but they won't let him escape I absolutely love the set location the musical score acting and i thought the story was fantastic and there's some really really well done practical gore effects one in particular, man, it had probably the, one of the best score effects of the year when the guy has to figure out what the hell's going on with his foot, and then you find out what the hell's going on, and he has to do a reverse. <laughs> You'll exactly know what I mean whenever you see that part of the film here. So it's definitely one of the most painful, painful-looking scenes of the year. Now, the film is predictable in parts, but I thought it had a really solid finale. Uh, but yeah, once again, this is a film, the more I thought about it, the better it was. I really think it's a really strong written film, strong acted. I absolutely don't know why it didn't get more love than what it did. Um, from what I've read of criticism about the film, I personally didn't find anything valid. I mean, they would nitpick here and there, but nothing I particularly agreed with here. But yeah, it's a solid ass film, and it is an 8 out of 10, and it is called Spill. All right, number five on my list. This is another film that I'm totally shocked more people aren't talking about it, and especially how easy it is to watch because it was on Shutter. You know, I'm assuming most people listening to this podcast and podcast fans out there do have Shutter, or at least do what I used to do. I'm a steady subscriber now, but what I used to do is I used to subscribe to Shutter. Uh, two to three times a year, I would binge watch everything. I would like about every four months, I would uh, subscribe, watch all the original shit, unsubscribe, watch it again four months later. So I, I, maybe three months of the year, and I would watch pretty much everything they had. Uh, they're getting more and more content, which is good. So I just been too lazy to stop my subscription. I just kept it on here. Uh, but anyway, this is a film that was on Shutter, and it is called Random Acts of Violence. And this is directed by Jay Baruchel. Yep, Jay Baruchel, that actor guy, that comedic actor, who's friends of James Franco and all that. Oh, yeah, James Franco, that's his name. Earlier in the rental, I said I couldn't remember that dude's name, uh, Dave Franco, the, uh, the the director of the rental, his older brother, James Franco. And, uh, you know, Jay Baruchel is one of those dudes that hangs out with uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco and all them, Jay Baruchel. Uh, and he actually directed a fucking fantastic horror film. And here's a synopsis of this one. Death imitates art. A pair of comic book writers begin to notice scary similarities between the character they created and horrific real-life events. Uh, four friends on a cross-country trip to a comic book convention here. So basically, you have this killer. Uh, so, the, so the two guys, uh, let me back up a little bit here. So two, there's, uh, I think, four of them. Did I read four? Yeah, four friends. A uh, guy and his girlfriend, 
um, his partner, which is Jay Baruchel, and another girl. I think she's the publicist. She works for him, I believe. I, I think she's a secretary. Anyway, the four of them are on a trip, uh, and the comic book they write is about a serial killer. So the killer that's following them is starting to imitate the kills that are in the comic book. Uh, this film has brutal kills, great cinematography, cool story. There's some awesome flashback scenes with uh, really cool um, lighting effects, uh, cool reveals, and a solid finale here. Uh, you know, there's some... I don't know if, yeah, I guess there is kind of a twist to it here, but it, but the reveal of it is uh, really works, and the finale works here. And to me, if you don't count open 24 hours, this is the, the best slasher of the year, hands down. Uh, so, yeah, once again, this is on Shudder. I have no idea why more people aren't watching it. Uh, I really don't have very many flaws with the film. I think it's edited very well, acted very well. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a big thumbs up. And it is another 8 out of 10 for me. Now, moving on to my number 4 film of the year, which this film has got a lot of love, just not quite as much love as I was expecting. I thought it would be higher on people's lists. It's one of these films that are on people's lists, it's just not quite as high as I have it. And it is a film called 1BR. And this is directed by David Marmer, which is also a first-time director, which that seems to be a theme in my top 25 Tons of first-time directors just out there kicking ass here. And here's a synopsis of this one here. When Sarah lucks into a sweet one-bedroom at Ilo Del Mar Apartments in Los Angeles, she thinks she's hit the jackpot. All right, that's the synopsis here. No, that's not it. Let me keep going. <laughs> it's got plenty of space, friendly tenants, a group of barbecues, and group of barbecues that don't make sense oh group barbecues it has friendly tenants group barbecues and even a cute neighbor next door all is not what it seems loud noises start uh, creeping in and keeping her awake at night her cat is missing everyone seems to be a little too helpful and friendly except for the weirdo lester soon sarah learned she didn't choose the apartment it chose her <laughs> this is a fantastic modern day i'm gonna do a minor spoiler just to talk about it very minor though this is a fantastic modern day cult movie uh i absolutely love the performance of her lead but played by nicole bright and bloom uh she has a genuine sweetness to her but also you can tell she has a kind of a fighter spirit uh she has a loudmouth brash friend uh i thought her character was great there's an old lady who lives at the apartment who becomes uh, befriends her. Her name is Edie. That actress is fantastic. Just all around, I thought it had fantastic casting. Uh, cool twists and turns I didn't see coming. Um, and now when we get to the finale of the film, there were two possible ways that it could have ended. There was either it could have ended where our character did something spontaneous. Or it could have been where a character had this calculated plan in motion uh let's just say they went opposite of what i normally prefer but it still ended up being a really solid solid end and if you want to talk to me later about it get with me here but i thought it was going to go one way uh of what i normally prefer but it actually went a different way which that worked also so yeah man a strong ending to it uh i'm not sure why this film is not higher up on people's list i thought it was uh fantastic man fantastic little cult cult little film an 8 out of 10 for myself, though. Uh, I recommend. All right, now we're getting to top three of the year. And number three 
is Rent-A-Pal. This is directed by John Stevenson, who is also a first-time director. Here's a synopsis. He talks to you. He listens to you. He understands you. Said in 1990, a lonely bachelor named David searches for an escape from a day-to-day drudgery of caring for his aging mother. While seeking a partner through a video dating service, he discovers a strange VHS, a VHS tape called Rent-A-Pal. It is hosted by the charming and charismatic Andy. The tape offers his much-needed company, compassion, and dating service. Wait a minute. Oh, let me start over again. <laughs> the tape offers him much-needed company, compassion, and friendship. But Andy's friendship comes at a cost, and David desperately struggles to afford the price of admission. Alright, I absolutely love the story and performance from all involved. As I read, his dude basically lives in his mother's basement. Um, there's his video rental service where you can go to find a perfect match. I don't know if they really, I'm assuming they really had these. It's kind of weird. But you go and you record a video and other people can rent them out. I guess it's, you know, of course, before internet was big here. Um, but why he is going to the video rental service to uh, try to hook up some to submit his tapes so can hook up with a chick he there's a cheap bin there's a cheap a vhs bin of films i guess on clearance or some shit and he finds one called rent-a-pal uh so he uh, rents he buys that movie and brings it home and in or, or rents it i don't know he buys it or rents it one of the two anyway uh um the rent-a-pal guy in the vhs is a guy named andy which is played brilliantly by will wheaton and how the video goes, Will Wheaton asks random questions and waits for you to answer. Of course, he doesn't know how you're going to answer, but they kind of guess. He tells stories. He anticipates, well, you know, what you're going to say next. And, of course, your answers don't always add. Uh, he, the lead guy, David's answers don't always match up to to the uh, video. But he's just mesmerized by this Andy character. So the David guy watches his tape over and over and over. So upon repeat viewings, David memorizes what to say to his answers. And he basically tailors his answers around to the questions. So this is basically a psychological horror film of a guy on a mental breakdown. But it's done in a really unique way. Um, there is a girl that he eventually meets in the film. And I thought she was terrific. Uh, it had a really good terrific bleak finale and this was in 1990 and as far as a period piece it was spot on man i thought it was uh, as far as the costume they went up going to see a roller rink and doing different stuff uh all of that was fantastic here so it's a huge thumbs up i think most people would like this if they give it a chance um yeah i really don't see too many people that hate on it maybe the horror element is not quite as strong as some people like i mean there's it's more of a, like I said, more of a mental breakdown type of thing than a straight up gory horror or jump scares or any of that. It's nothing like that at all. It's definitely more of a, you know, drama vibe to it, but it all worked for me. And this is the only film that I watch back to back. I watched it one day. I say back to back. I watch it one day and then the next day my mom come over and I was like, I wonder if my mom would like this. My mom's a weird horror watcher. She She's mainly a gore hound and jump scare type person she really doesn't like stuff with a lot of story into it so uh she hated it <laughs> she thought it was boring as fuck but but uh yeah absolutely love this film and uh, uh definitely recommend it and this actually gets bumped up so all the other ones previously the uh, the last three or four or five whatever it was 
we're all 8, 8 out of 10, and this one gets bumped up to 8.25 out of 10. All right, now moving on to my number two film of the year. And this was my number one film of the year for the longest time until it got bumped out, obviously. And it is VFW, directed by Joe Bagos. A typical night for veterans at a VFW turns into an all-out battle for survival when a desperate teen runs into the bar with a bag of stolen drugs. When a gang of violent punks come looking for her, the vets use every weapon at their disposal to protect the girl and themselves from an unrelenting attack. <laughs> now, Joe Bagos, the director, he's now four for four. Uh, his debut film, Almost Human, was fantastic. Highly underrated uh, debut film. It's might be my favorite that he's done. This NVFWR, I guess, are. Uh, the Mind's Eye he did, it's kind of a Scanners ripoff type of film. It's my least favorite film he did, but it's still really solid. A few years ago, he did a fantastic film called Bliss. And then now we have VFW, which possibly, uh, yeah, I would say it's overall his best film. Even though I really, really enjoy Almost Human, this is probably slightly stronger. Uh, of course, this film is highly influenced by, I would say, John Carpenter, uh, soundtrack-wise, and also a nod to uh, like stuff uh, on like Assault on Precinct 13 with the Siege premise. Uh, the film has amazing, over-the-top, practical gore effects, uh, it's awesome, bright-colored lighting, and terrific performances by the uh, the geriatrics, all the leads here. You have Stephen Lang, which is awesome. Martin Cove uh, was great. William Sadler is always fantastic. Uh, oh, man, I was so glad they got Fred Williamson. He added so much, even though he didn't have a huge role in comparison to some of the other people. Uh, yeah, his lines in the film were fantastic. My only disappointment with the cast is they didn't have enough George Wint. Um, I just thought he, out of all the other character actors, he was the one that didn't get enough screen time, in my opinion here. Uh, and I absolutely love George Wendt, but um, he got the short end of the straw as far as uh, as far as being in the film. Uh, but the film has solid pacing, really good dialogue, and a fantastic finale. It not much to say here. Just watch it. I'm sure most of you've seen it out there, and I absolutely love it. 8.25 out of 10. BFW. Alright, now moving on to my number one horror film of the year. And I thought I was going to be the only person to have this as the number one of the year. Not that I was trying to. Believe me, I don't try to be unique or be pick something just to be different. If something uh, tickles my fancy, I'm going to go with it here. So while I was watching this film, I would say right about the halfway mark, I knew this film was special for me. I was like, wow, I absolutely fucking love this film. As long as it don't fuck up the ending, then I, I then uh, I know it's going to be in my number one of the year. And nope, not only did it not fuck up the ending, I absolutely love the ending here. And, all right, you're saying get to it. What the fuck film is it? It is The Wolf of Snow Hollow, directed by Jim Cummings. And here's a synopsis. Welcome to Snow Hollow. A stressed-out police officer struggles not to give in to paranoia that grips a small mountain town as bodies turn up after each full moon. <laughs> That's the basic synopsis of the film here. Uh, a werewolf uh, in town is killing people, slicing them up, the uh, young hot women here. And I fucking love this film. Now, I'm not normally a horror comedy guy. Um, 
I mean, I do like horror comedies, but they usually don't rate extremely high for me. I like more seriously toned films. Uh, but I admit, man, I laughed my ass off in this film. The lead character, Jim, which Jim, he actually directed the film, wrote the film, and starred in the film. He did the trifecta, man. Jim Cummings is fucking fantastic. He plays this asshole, struggling, uh, alcoholic guy trying to raise a, a little hot teenage daughter. Uh, there's just so many layers to this film. The dialogue in the movie is extremely witty. Uh, the, the delivery of the characters' monologues, fantastic. Their facial expressions. There's things that are going on in scenes like in the background that you have to look out for. So not only did the comedy work, uh, which all of that was fucking fantastic, but there are some definite intense quote-unquote werewolf attack moments. There's some really good horror sequences of the film. Some of the best horror sequences of the year is, is, is uh, as far as I'm concerned here. Um, one of my favorite things of the film, this is Robert Forster's final film, and there is a great heartfelt conversation between our sheriff, Jim, and his, his dad is the lead sheriff. Uh, and there's a really awesome conversation they have towards the end, really touching. Um, and as you come to find out, Robert Forster, who was having real-life medical problems at the time, he ended up dying right after he completed filming this film. Um, now, I know from what I've read, the quote-unquote twist of the film ended up pissing a lot of people off which I have no idea why. I absolutely love the twist of the film. And if you pay attention to the details throughout the movie, they set it up perfectly here. So it shouldn't be like a super surprise of, of what's going on. Um, but yeah, man, it really worked here. And the twist actually makes sense um, after you watch it. And this is another film that uh, I, my mom was over at the time. And I, pff, I had no clue because she doesn't like horror comedies at all. She's, like I said, she's uh, one of those uh, jump scare uh, uh, gore hounds. So she doesn't like too serious of films and she doesn't like comedy. She just uh, usually is a one type, one track type of horror film fan. And she absolutely loved this film too. She was laughing at some parts of the film. It was, totally shocked me. And by the end of the film, she was, wow, you finally showed me a good horror film. <laughs> I showed her all these badass films that are on my list here, and she pretty much hated most of them. But finally, she goes, yeah, finally show me something good here. Uh, but yeah, man, I absolutely love this film. How this is not getting more more buzz, I have no idea. If you haven't seen The Wolf of Snow Hollow, go ahead and buy this bad boy now. Rent it, VOD it. I would say just jump on the Blu-ray. Absolutely buy it. It has definite... Talk about rewatch factor. Uh, I, I've seen it three times, and I'm already dying to see it again here. It definitely has rewatch factor. So this will be something I'll be probably watching every winter. It has a great winter. It's in uh, Utah, I believe. Yeah. So it definitely has a great winter setting. So it'll be one of these films. Not necessarily a Christmas film, but a winter-based film that I'll be watching for sure in the future. Uh, yeah, that was my number one of the year, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And my rating for it is 8.75 out of 10. So it doesn't quite make my, as I mentioned before, my ratings at the beginning, doesn't make the 9 out of 10, which instantly makes it a classic film, quote-unquote classic, or all-time classic. I don't think it's ever going to reach that status, but it is, in my opinion, like a cult classic type film. And, uh, yeah, high recommend here. All right, so that makes up my top 25 films of the year. So now I'm going to get into a few honorable mentions. I'll, I'll mention six. And the reason why I say six, because these were my other 7.75s at a year. 
they just didn't quite make my top 25 list. So I'll, I'll go through these uh, fairly quickly here. But one of them is uh, number 26 was Hunter Hunter. Uh, awesome film. It probably has the most satisfying ending of the year. Fantastic end to that film. Alone. Uh, I think Watson turned me on to this one. It's about this woman being stalked. Uh, uh, yeah, man, it's it fucking fantastic, creepy film. I love it. Uh, number 28 was Kindred. And I know Moods from 23 Shots of Moods and Horror absolutely hated this film. But I loved it here. It's about this pregnant woman. Her husband dies. And she has to live with her mother-in-law and a creepy servant guy. They take her in. It's kind of like a Rosemary almost type twist to it um or not twist but rosemary types rosemary type story to it uh really good film here and great great performances in that um is that was 28 29th was the platform that's that spanish film on netflix i normally hate these type of artistic films where it's not realistic at all it's all basically allegories and uh, whatever the fuck you call that shit I it, just put it this way it's not my type of film I don't like these artsy films where it's not based in realism there's no way that platform could go up and down you know without electricity there's no way they could build that giant complex that would be millions billions of dollars anyway it's just not realistic the whole purpose is to make a point and I don't like those kind of films. I like them to be based in reality. You can have a message. I don't mind having a message. But I prefer it being based in realism. And this film is not. It's all based in, in fantasy type shit. Uh, that's my knock against it. But it's still a fantastic film, obviously. Or I wouldn't have rated it my number 29th favorite film of the year. My number 30 film of the year was The Mortuary Collection. Easily the best anthology of the year. Uh, fantastic film. Uh, I know this one is highly praised in a lot of people's lists. And... Well worthy, well worthy. And then my number 31 film of the year was my biggest drop of the year. I had it number seven, I believe, for the longest time. And upon rewatch, it dropped from seven all the way down to 31. And that is Gretel and Hansel. Now this film, don't get me wrong, has an amazing, amazing soundtrack. Maybe the best soundtrack of the year. Um, great performances, cinematography. As far as production-wise, it's top-notch. The biggest problem with this film is the ending, how the ending just falters. To me, the film is really anticlimactic. It felt like it should have had like 20 more minutes. Uh, it feels like it's missing from it, some character development of the girl. Uh, I don't like the final confrontation and how the film wraps up. It, it feels unearned, like it's kind of too soon. It feels like it's missing scenes. To lead up to what this girl can do if i don't want to spoil it here but it just seems like what happened wouldn't have actually happened it, it just missing some development in there um like i said it felt like it's missing like 20 minutes maybe there's some directors cut out there that can make it better um it just yeah just the film needed to, to wrap it up the film needed to be longer to earn the ending that it ended here uh, but still fantastic movie and as i mentioned fantastic soundtrack so there, I'm just gonna get a little bit into soundtracks here because there's two different, there's two types of soundtracks when it comes to horror films. There's uh, soundtracks that you can listen to um, on your own. You can sit and relax to because they're full-length songs, and uh, you know they have structure to them. Uh, or there's also soundtracks which are good while you're watching the movie. They set the tone of the movie good, but when you're listening to them outside of the movie, it just don't make sense. It's just 
ambient noises or droning. And that's if a good example of that is Possessor. Possessor has a fantastic soundtrack when you're watching the movie, but when you're listening to it on its own, but you know, on Spotify or whatever, if you download it, you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool, but it, it doesn't doesn't work. It just doesn't work sitting to here by yourself. Uh, but yeah, Gretel and Hansel has an <laughs> amazing fucking soundtrack. The Color of Sound. Um, is that what it's called? Yeah, The Color of Sound has a great... See, The Color of Sound is a mixture. It has both. It has really memorable songs uh, that you can listen to, but it also has some songs that are just like noise and stuff that are made just for scenes in the movie. So that one has a mixture too, but that's also a fantastic soundtrack. So I did hear a shitload of those. I, I was going to make a top 10, but um, I'm too lazy. I'm not going to do it here, but... Definitely, definitely recommend Gretel and Hansel soundtrack. Down, download that bad boy as soon as possible or stream it, whatever you do. All right, so those are my honorable mentions. All right, <laughs> we're not done quite yet. I'm getting there, but we have a few hidden gems, and these are some of my favorite films I talk about, films that I hardly hear anyone talk about. So in my definition, the hidden gem uh, at least has to be a 7.5 out of 10 or above, and it has to be a film that hardly anyone uh, in my opinion, talk about. And I have three of these here. Uh, the first one is a film called Blind. It is directed by Marcel Walls. And the synopsis, Love is Blind. Faye, a former actress that lost her vision due to a botched laser eye surgery, struggles to put her life back together when living alone in her dream house in the Hollywood Hills. Supported by her friend Sophia, she starts opening up to Luke, a personal trainer who is mute and can only communicate through his cell phone. When a masked stranger named Pretty Boy shows up, Faye will realize that she's in. She Faye realizes that she's not as alone as she thinks. Uh, so yeah, basically synopsis: a blind woman who has a guy stalking her. <laughs> you know, you've seen that in I'm sure other films before, but there are some uh, definite creepy moments that come out of that. Uh, another fantastic soundtrack. There's one song that they play, like a full-length song in the movie. It's, it's amazing. It fits the movie perfectly. Uh, and creepy moments and a pretty solid finale. So uh, I definitely recommend it. It's worth checking out. And it's 7.5 out of 10 for me. All right. The next hidden gem is a film called My Soul to Keep. And here's a synopsis on this one. Like many nine-year-old boys, Eli Braverman believes something menacing lives in his basement. When his older sister leaves him alone one night, Eli discovers if this evil is real or all in his head. What Eli confronts may end up being far more terrifying than even his worst nightmare. All right, so this is basically a kid's horror film. Uh, you could watch it with your preteens. Uh, really fun. Um, as I read, you have this little nine-year-old kid experiencing supernatural shit. He has a total cunt of a sister. I'm talking this You've seen cunts in films, <laughs> believe me, but you, I don't know if you've seen one on this level in a long time. His sister is a total fucking cunt, man. The shit she pulls in this film is unreal. I just put it that way. There's two different things she does in the film, and I'm like, holy shit. I thought I had a rough sister. I have a sister seven years older than me, and there ain't no way she would have pulled this shit on me. But anyway, uh, that's the story here. Uh, you have this kid. He uh, thinks some ghosts are in his basement or some supernatural in his basement. And him and his uh, little buddy are trying to fight it. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it. Really fun kids horror-centric film. Another 7.5 out of 10. That's called My Soul to Keep. All right. And then the last hidden gem I want to talk about, it was on uh, Netflix. 
And I heard someone talk about, I'm trying to, oh yeah, Mark Nato on his podcast, he ended up talking about the film a little bit. And it is a film called Cadaver. And it is directed by a guy named Jerron Herdal. In the aftermath of a nuclear disaster, a starving family finds hope in a charismatic hotel owner. Lured by the prospect of a free dinner, they discover that the evening's entertainment blurs the lines between performance and reality. Will they wind up on the spe- as spectators or as a spectacle? So this film is basically, it's like a post-apocalyptic Norway. Um, people live, they go from building to building just to try to survive. Uh, there are a few rich people in town and they invite these, you know, quote unquote normies, uh, poor people, invite them to watch a play. And uh, it's a play where you walk around the mansion and you follow people and you watch what they're doing. Um, they, they wear these masks. So how you know who the actors is, is they wear these masks. So the actors wear these masks and you, uh, no, wait a minute. The opposite, I'm sorry. The people that are not part of the play, they wear masks and they walk around watching people um, act out different different shit. But come to find out, of course, it's a horror movie, so not everything as is how it seems. Uh, they have this couple have a small daughter that she goes missing in the house along with some other people that end up going missing. So the couple are trying to find their missing daughter and they're trying to escape the horror of what's really going on. Uh, this is a film, unlike Platform, it's symbolic uh, of like classism, a message, you know, has messages of how far you would go to protect your family. So it does have different messages, but it's also a film that could quote-unquote potentially you know happen in real life so that's what i liked about this film um you know so it does have a great message and it does make practical sense uh so there are some really good solid twist reveals and a pretty decent finale too and i'm going to give that one a seven and a half out of ten all right i can't believe i pulled it off a one take fucker i did it (laughs) had a few mess ups i don't think too bad hopefully hopefully it wasn't too annoying now my voice may sound a little bit different right now because I just had to move the computer into another room. So the acoustics, I think, are a little bit different in here. So it may sound a little bit different, but I did it. No one-take fucker here. I hope you enjoyed the show. I do want to end uh, on a little bit of shout-outs and uh, a little thing here. I want to thank all of the supporters over all these almost a dozen years. I've been doing horror podcasting and had horrorphilia.com. I want to thank uh, all the listeners, of course. We wouldn't have stayed around if it wasn't for you. I want to thank all of the podcasters that have been part of the network that I've ever worked with or hosted. Um, I was trying to count them all the other day, and there's been over 50 different podcasts that's been on the network at one time or another. You know, some podcasts had a few episodes. (laughs) A few other podcasts had a few hundred episodes. Uh, Now, overall, we've had uh, basically two and a half million downloads, which is a number I'm proud of. You know, of course, Joe Rogan probably gets that in a day. But for a small indie horror podcaster group, I think that's pretty damn good here. So I've had a lot of good times uh, doing this. Uh, A few bad times. I'm not going to say there wasn't no drama during the time. Um, There was a period where there were a few podcasts that left the network because of my own personal beliefs that I posted on my Facebook uh, Facebook page, which I've never, ever forced my beliefs on anyone. You know, that was just my personal um beliefs that i posted on facebook i've never ever told any podcaster on our network that they had to tone down or edit their podcasts i've never i believe in 100 percent freedom of speech um 
Yeah, I would never do that here. You uh, hopefully you'd never hear anyone say that I did because that that's a damn lie. I've uh, let people do whatever they wanted, even if I didn't totally agree with the the way they went along and you know stuff they said. I might not have agreed with, but uh, I let them be be as it is. Now, while the network may be over, um, a lot of the podcasts that I did host towards the end, they have moved over to the Dark Discussions Network, which uh, thankfully Phil has welcomed them in. So a lot of these podcasts are uh, now have joined them. So, um, you know, definitely give them a, a, a listen over there. Uh, this uh, particular podcast, Phil said he would go ahead and post it on here. I am going to have HorrorPhilly.com uh, set up for a few more days. But after that, I'm going to shut it down. Now, me personally, I'll still be around reviewing horror films. Um, possibly on a new site. I haven't decided exactly whether I'm going to do a brand new site. Uh, if I'm going to write and do reviews for other sites, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but I know for sure I'm not going to be hosting any more podcasts. I did that for 12 years. And while it was a great time, it, I, I just don't have that much time in my life at this point, uh, at least at this moment in my life, my, the kid, my age, my kids are and other things I got going on. I'm just don't have the time to dedicate to properly address the issues to make it a smooth running network. Um, far as me, am I going to podcast anymore? I believe so. I'm sure I'll guest host here and there. Uh, I do plan on always doing end of the year podcasts, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I, I don't think I mentioned here, but the beginning of the, uh, but the total movies that I watch for the 2020, I watch 160 2020 horror films. So that may sound like a lot, but it's, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to some people like Mark Nato. Um, but I think it's a pretty good selection of movies myself. It's ones I'll put it this way. I don't think there was any movie. Actually, I'll take it back. There is one movie I didn't get to see, um, which I'll, I'll find it here in a moment because I totally forgot the name of it. But anyway, there is one Asian film I didn't see because I started to watch it's a part two and I started to watch it and I was fucking totally lost. And I was like, man, I need to watch part one before I watch part two. And I never got around to do it. So with that, with the exception of that one movie, I did get to see everything I wanted to see. The reason why I'm re releasing this podcast so late is I wanted to hear other top 10 lists to see if there's any major films that I missed that I could watch real quick. Uh, and the only one, like I mentioned, is The Golden Glove. You know, I had no plans on watching that one. So, uh, um, thankfully, that one, I guess The Empty Man, too. Uh, I didn't hear that on a podcast, but Mark Nato mentioned it to me on Facebook. So, those two are late additions that I'm glad I, I watched uh, towards the end here. Um yeah, so once again, thank you for listening all these years. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you got some enjoyment, maybe a few films that you weren't aware of that sounded cool to you to maybe to check out. And thank you again to Phil from Dark Discussions uh, Podcast to agree to host this particular episode. Um, who knows? You might hear more from me later. Uh, but uh, Horphilia.com will be shutting down before the end of February for sure. Maybe in the next few days, but for sure February 28th is the end of the contract. Um, now I will, if there's a podcast that's still not going on and you want to hear any of their episodes, I am going to have an archive. I'm going to download it on a personal uh, hard drive here. So I'll have pretty much every episode we've ever hosted. Still on a hard drive, so if you ever wanted to hear an old episode of a particular podcast, uh, 
most likely I'll still have it on file. Um, but, you know, a lot of the podcasts are still going on right now, so I'm sure they you can get it straight from the source itself. All right, so thanks for listening, and that's all I got. And normally I put a kick-ass song to end the podcast. I know I said I wasn't going to do a lot of editing on this, editing on this, but I think I'm going to, uh, as far as putting a song on the end. I'm going to play one of my favorite songs of the year here, and it is a band called Killer Be Killed. Not kill or be killed, but kill or be killed. And if you're not familiar with them, they're kind of a uh, super group, they call them, uh, because it's made up of a, a bunch of people from other bands. Uh, let me let me pull it up here. I'm going to give you the right information here. Okay, so here's, here's three vocalists in the film. There is um, the Dillinger Escape Plan vocalist named Greg. Pucciato, he's one of the singers and he plays guitar. Uh, you have Max Cavalera, which is my favorite person in the band. He's the uh, singer. Uh, he used to sing for Sepultura. Now he does Soulfly and Cavalera Conspiracy. He plays guitar and sings. Uh, there's also the Mastodon, that band Mastodon, the bassist and vocalist Troy Sanders. And then, so there are three singing and playing music. And then they have the drummer from a band called Converge named Ben Kohler. So this band, man, they are a fucking super band. Uh, music style, uh, man, I don't know what you call it. Groove metal is what it says on Wiki. I guess that's a good a good uh, label for it, I'm assuming here. It's kind of unique, in my opinion, uh, their, their style. It is has a commercial tinge to it. But at the same time, it is still pretty br uh, fucking brutal, as you'll see when you hear the song here. Um, so I'll end it on that song. Hopefully you enjoy the song. And until next time, peace out, everyone. Love you all. Later.